Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. No, I won't be the one left behind. You can't be king of the world if you're slave to the grind. Tear down that rat racial slime. You can't be king of the world if you're slave to the grind. Yes, this is a uh, primal endurance podcast about how to swim faster. <laughs> you can't be king of the world if you're slave to the grind in the pool either. You have to work on your technique as your highest priority. So let's talk about that. Let's put it all together and This is the How to Swim Faster show. We're going to get it all handled via audio. We don't even need video. You know what? There's a ton of good videos on the internet. Look up a good swimmer, Michael Phelps, whoever you want, and study their technique. Back in the day when I was trying to become a fast swimmer, when I was all excited about my foray into this wonderful new challenge of triathlon coming off of the high school and college running experience... Uh, I swam my whole life splashing around in swimming pools, but I was never a trained uh, competitive swimmer, so I had to immerse myself into the uh, technique attributes of the sport because it's so technique-dependent, vastly more dependent uh, than other sports where you don't have as much resistance, uh, such as running, although running is still technique-dependent, and we'll do a whole conversation about that, too. Uh, But that was before the age of the internet, man. There was no videos to look up. Just think how uh, fortunate we are today. So I had to go to the library. No, we didn't have Amazon either. No Amazon Prime. This is back in the uh, mid-80s. And I'd check out these uh, gems, these wonderful books they had about improving your swimming technique and learning about the physics of swimming. I forget who the authors were. I think one of them might have just been called Swim Faster. This was before uh, Terry Laughlin and all the uh, great modern uh, proprietors of uh, swim information and video series. So, yeah, I just dug into this physics book, and it was talking about the difference between drag propulsion and lift propulsion. So I had a nice physics lesson as I was aspiring to improve my swimming. Uh, Briefly, drag propulsion is when you're uh, pushing in only a single direction, a single dimension. So if you imagine a paddle boat, you know, those things down the Mississippi River that go real slow, and in the back, it's powered by a rotating uh, uh, sphere that's just pushing water backward and pushing the boat forward accordingly. But it does not have a lot of efficiency because you're only pushing the water in one direction. Don't worry, this is going to have a huge application to your swimming, so enjoy my story. So, when the paddle wheel pushes the water backward, initiates that backward push of water, what happens is, as the wheel continues to push backward, it's pushing water that's basically in a vacuum. The water's already moving backward, so you're pushing through a vacuum, making it easier for the wheel to spin You understand what I'm saying? And then we relate this to your hand paddling through the water. So if you imagine standing in the shallow end, and I do this with people that I'm giving swim lessons to, and put your arm out in front of you and push water straight back as fast as you can, as hard as you can, what's going to happen is the first 
12 inches of movement from a still hand position to thrusting that hand backward is going to be difficult. You're going to be pushing still, clean water backward, right? And there's a lot of resistance in the water. But after your hand moves through the first foot of water, the rest of the time, because you already pushed water backward in that same exact direction, that same plane that your hand is moving in, the rest of the traveling of your hand is going to be a lot easier because you're traveling in a vacuum, essentially, right? Your hand is moving through water that you already forced in a backward direction. Same with the paddle wheel on the boat. Once you get that water starting to move backward, the rest of it is much, much easier because you're not working with still water. You're working with water that's already moving in the direction that you're trying to uh, move your hand or your paddle. Does that make sense? Why is this so important to swimming? Is because in swimming, you always want to find still water to move through and propel yourself forward with greater energy efficiency than moving through water that is already moving backward. So if you have a crappy swim stroke, we call it slipping through water that's uh, already moving. So if you imagine standing in the shallow end, pushing your hand straight back and pushing that water straight back after the first 12 inches, 18 inches, whatever, the rest of the time your hand's just slipping through the vacuum. That is why you might be familiar with the uh, S pattern swim stroke. And this is just a uh, concept to uh, understand the physics about it. I don't like uh, thinking about making an S while you're in the water because that'll totally confuse you. And I would rather be more uh, natural and intuitive and just uh, talk about things like maintaining a streamlined position as you swim through the water. Uh, And your hand, your arm is going to naturally make an S pattern when you enter, bend it to uh, move under your body, and then straighten it again to extend it out. It actually makes uh, an S-like shape. Uh, But what we want to do is understand the difference between drag propulsion, where you're moving water only in one direction, and what's called lift propulsion, which is the action of a propeller in the water. And we know how a propeller spins with those interesting shaped blades, and it spins in a circular manner. So if you imagine like a corkscrew pattern, that's what the propeller is doing to the water. So the propeller, let's say, is slow motion is turning in a clockwise manner. So from going from 12 to 3 with the propeller, you're shooting water out to the right of the boat, let's say. And then going from 3 to 6, you're shooting water down below the boat. And then going from 6 to 9, you're shooting water out to the left. And then going from 9 to 12 with one revolution of the propeller in very, very slow motion I'm talking about, from 9 to 12, you're shooting that water, let's say, up and toward the boat. So now as the propeller... Uh, starts to spin at 1,000 RPM or whatever propeller's doing, you imagine that you're constantly finding still water to move in a different direction. Therefore, because you're working against maximum resistance at all times, the propeller is going to send the boat through the water much, much faster than the paddle wheel. Also important concept when you're talking about getting an airplane off the ground. Can you imagine just pushing an airplane with 
the flaps on the wing going back and forth and pushing the air backward, pushing the air backward, it will never get off the ground. Conversely, a propeller and that interesting shape to the propeller where the blades are pointing in different directions, right? When you see a propeller uh, on a still airplane, once you fire that thing up, it is knifing through the air and moving that air constantly in different directions. That is called lift propulsion, and that's how you get an airplane off the ground. For a swimmer in the water who is generating lift propulsion, you are getting vastly more uh, success, more power, more energy efficiency uh, through the lift, and you're going to keep your body position high in the water as well because you are constantly finding still water to move your body through. You can envision how this is going to keep your body more buoyant than the drag propulsion where uh, if you're slipping even for a foot or 18 inches of inefficiency in your stroke, um, that is all that time your body's going to sink, right? Because you're not moving it through still water. Um, And this is a very common flaw among swimmers, uh, oftentimes referred to as, let's say, a dropped elbow or something. And this, what, what happens is when you reach forward and enter that hand into the water and initiate the pull backward, they call it the catch and then the pull. So your hand knifes into the water You glide a little bit if you're a good swimmer, and then uh, you make a sincere effort to grab the water and push it behind you. And so that first uh, 6, 12, 18 inches of the stroke is very efficient because you can't help but grab and pull still water behind you. But once that hand starts to get uh, close to the body or in line with the, the body, let's say it's back toward the level of your head or your chest, what a lot of people do because the resistance starts to get to be too much, it starts to get difficult, is the elbow kind of drops rather than staying uh, above the hand. It kind of drops in front of the hand. I don't know, that's the best way I can describe it. But once that elbow drops, then your hand travels through uh, water that's already moving. It travels in a vacuum. And then if you're lucky, by the time the hand gets, let's say, past the chest and toward the, the waistline, Again, you have still water and you aggressively move that hand and exit out of the water along the side of your body, hopefully with the arm fully extended. A lot of times swimmers are lazy in that manner too, where if you imagine standing straight up and uh, seeing how far your hands extend down your thigh, for most people, they're halfway down the thigh. Some of these basketball players have a reach that's six or eight inches more than their, their actual height, so their hands might be going down toward their knees more. But let's say for most of us, we have uh, normal length arms. We want to exit the water with our arm fully extended. So we're going to be exiting halfway down the thigh rather than at the bathing suit line for the man, uh, the you know the bikini bathing suit line. Uh, that means we're missing out on the last six to 12 inches of stroke power. And again, losing buoyancy, losing efficiency. So that's the physics concepts that uh, meant so much to me when I read them in a textbook. It actually helped my swimming immediately to understand this concept of lift propulsion versus drag propulsion and trying to find that still water and basically make it difficult for your arms and have your muscles engaged throughout the stroke. A good swimmer should feel uh, initially the abdominals engage because you're fully extended before you take your stroke and apply your power. And then that power from the stroke should be generated mostly from the lats, the big wings on the side of your back that you see overdeveloped in swimmers, latissimus dorsi, 
Those are big guys. They are capable of generating a lot of force and a lot of power. Unfortunately, what we see from the average recreational swimmer is failure to engage the lats very well and instead battling that water with the deltoids, the muscles on the front of the shoulder that are very sensitive and easy to strain and uh, get aching and pains uh, for, for weeks on end when you have poor swim technique or you're overdoing it, and also the biceps and the triceps, the significantly smaller and less efficient, less powerful muscles than engaging those lats. So to engage the lats, you have to be fully stretched out and really reaching for that water, extending through your abdominals, and then pulling back forcefully and making an effort to generate that lift propulsion, find still water to move in different directions, and that's when those lats are really firing um, a little demonstration or a little tip you can do uh, is trying to uh, hang in the deep end, put your hands on the deck, and then get yourself out of the water. In other words, uh, push your body up onto the deck, and that will engage the lats. If you extend your arms straight, so you're underwater, uh, and you're reaching for the deck, and then you have to get your body up and out of the water, it's mimicking a perfect swim stroke because you're going to push off and your elbows are going to kind of extend out to the side uh, because if you're dragging your elbows or dropping them, in other words, let's say they're still hanging in the water while your hands are on the deck, you're never going to get out of the water. So you have to bend your elbows, extend them outward and move your body up and over your hands and elbows till you get your trunk up onto the deck and then you can scramble out of the pool. So every time we get out of the pool is a great opportunity to execute good swim technique and feel what it's like to engage the lats. And oh boy, I got some dry land stuff to suggest that's going to be another way to uh, learn how to engage those lats and develop them. So now let's take a step back at the big picture and figure out the prioritization of how to improve your swimming. Obviously, since I've already talked about it so much, technique is of paramount importance and vastly more important than the other factors that contribute to uh, good swim performance. In fact, let's break down swimming into three main areas that you need to become competent at. First is your technique. Second is your muscular endurance. In other words, the ability to uh, generate power and preserve that good technique for the duration of your event. And most of us listening, uh, multi-sport athletes are going for uh, long distance open water swims or triathlon events where you're basically in that category of distance freestyle swimmer, right? If you're into masters and you're going for the 200 breaststroke record at the masters games like Rip Esselstyn, you're probably not listening to a podcast from some old time triathlete guy who came from a running background. But if you're in that multi-sport mix and you're someone like me who doesn't have that tremendously strong swimming background where all this stuff is second nature, maybe this will be a good show for you. Okay, so technique, by far number one in importance. Then you have to have that muscular endurance. And then finally, the third component is your cardiovascular fitness, uh, which of course is important when you're doing an endurance sport. But guess what? Uh, virtually every multi-sport athlete has an A-plus in cardiovascular endurance. The heart and lungs can go as long as you want in the water, and the thing that's holding you back, that's holding you out of the lead pack, is your technique, 
And then secondly, perhaps your muscular endurance. Maybe we're getting an A plus in cardio and a, a B or a C in muscular endurance. If you swim a lot, of course, you're building good endurance. But then when we go into that glaring shortcoming in technique, uh, we might see a lot of people with their report cards, a lot of these triathletes uh, with an A plus in cardio, a B or a C in muscular endurance, and a D or an F in technique. Not to be um, too spicy here, but um, that's probably the reality for many, many people. And I coached uh, a great many amateur triathletes. I had a, uh, a corporate group of people that I worked with that were training for their first triathlon. And so I'd give swim lessons every week. And I had a lot of private one-on-one clients that I'd film and evaluate their stroke in the pool. I got really uh, enthusiastic about this role, uh, just learning to break down technique and, and help people implement technique improvements on the spot while we're working together in the water. And then, of course, looking at the video after is so helpful, especially in swimming, because especially in the case of a lot of adults, uh, kids learn better because they're more malleable, their central nervous system. But a lot of adults, I'll say, uh, so look, you're crossing over the center line with your arms. So when you enter, you have to get your arms a little bit out wider and make sure you don't cross over that center line because then you're going to do a fishtail pattern through the water. So please try to correct that. <laughs> and then I'd watch them swim two more laps and come back and they'd uh, reach the, the wall and say, oh my gosh, that feels so much better. Thank you. What a great tip. And I almost didn't have the heart to say, uh, you're still doing it. It's not quite as atrocious, but it's still very, very bad. So we got to continue to correct that. You're not out of the woods yet, man. But they had no perception besides that they changed a little bit uh, of the previous flaw, but that it was still way over the center line. So difficult to have that proprioception, that kinesthetic awareness, much easier to do the session get some specific critical feedback at the time, and then go home and watch the video and make before and after videos over time. Oh my gosh, same with the golf swing. If you're bored enough to go look on my personal YouTube site, you will see (laughs) no less than at least 50 very boring uh, uh, tripod camera shots of my golf swing over time because I was uh, returning to the sport of golf after a long layoff Uh, starting back in 2013, 2014, and I wanted to rebuild my swing from the ground up and get rid of these flaws and try to, you know, execute good mechanics. So I was working through uh, new uh, swing techniques and new uh, positionings. So I basically filmed myself every time I practice. I'd put it up on YouTube. I'd go home and study it and had to ingrain that good technique through video and through repetition because you don't have that awareness when you're not being filmed. So Building that technique, that number one priority, entails ideally personal instruction from a swim technique expert and followed by video analysis and repeated video analysis. The cool thing about swimming and swim coaches and swim programs, um, you have a lot of availability from the person at your swimming pool to uh, stay after a little bit, offer them a bribe of 20 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever to watch you one-on-one Uh, try to improve technique and give you some good pointers. So there's no excuse not to when you're working that hard in the pool and you've signed up for a master's group or a swim group or whatever you're uh, doing uh, to not try to seek out that private instruction. Um, And you can get just, you know, a handful of sessions will make a huge difference. You'll know what you have to work on. You'll have video to uh, reveal these flaws and how you're doing correcting them. And then you're off and running to vast improvements in your performance from 
no extra work, no extra calories burned, uh, but just fighting with the water less and being more smooth and streamlined. So uh, just to jump back to some technique, we, we don't want to get too into it on a, on a verbal, on an audio uh, presentation, but when I talked about engaging from the lats and using your, engaging from the abdominals, using your lats to initiate the stroke, finishing the stroke all the way where your arms extended, those are some good pointers. And what does that all translate to or add up to? It adds up to a streamlined position in the water. So the secret to excellent swimming technique is to maintain a streamlined position for as long as possible, as frequently as possible throughout your swim stroke. Uh, So you want to have those shoulders extended when you reach into the water, never fishtailing, never crossing over the center line, but being in that narrow as position as possible where your legs are straight and extended, your toes are pointed, your kick is uh, very moderate because the energy cost of kicking vigorously, especially for a multi-sport athlete, the energy cost of using that blood for the large muscles in your legs propels you forward much less efficiently than using the arms. Don't believe me? Get out a kickboard and try to swim as fast as you can while you're just kicking uh, back and forth across the pool. Uh, Much slower, much more difficult, absolutely out of breath after a single lap rather than being able to swim for a mile or however long uh, with predominantly your arms. But you want those legs together. Your toes should be even touching and grazing each other throughout the stroke that's indicative that you're not fishtailing with your legs uh, and not crossing over the center line with your arms. If you cross over the center line with your arms, guess what? Your legs are going to kick out and leave that streamlined position in order to balance your body in the water because you're off balance, so you need a corrective act at the back of your body if the front of your body's out of balance, if your arms are crossing over the center line. So if you can envision during the stroke, during the uh, complete cycling of, let's say, uh, a, a swim stroke where you swim uh, right arm pull, left arm pull, and then back to right arm pull, you want to spend as much time as possible in that extended streamlined position. So when you enter the water, water and reach for uh, the initiation of your stroke, be patient. Stay in that position for a long time because you're gliding through the water. And then when you pull the stroke, your body wants to rotate like a pig on a spit, okay? So you want to rotate around this axis as you envision, let's say, uh, a rebar going through the top of your head and out your tail. And so your body's rotating back and forth only on that plane. Not, not obviously not diving down into the water and lowering your body position, coming back up, but gliding along the top of the water. So the rebar is at water level and you are spinning back and forth along that line. You're not Uh, lengthening and shortening the length of your body. You're just uh, jammed through there, just like the pig on the spit. Got it? So that's how you're going to maintain a streamlined position as long as possible, is reaching, gliding, taking the stroke, extending out uh, from the back with your, uh, your, your back hand extended all the way while your front hand is reaching all the way and extending, okay? So trying to fit inside a phone booth dropped from the sky into a very narrow phone booth. That's how your position should be in the water most of the time. Okay, so we've talked enough about technique, and that's number one. The muscular endurance, number two. The cardio is number three. I wouldn't even worry about cardio. Uh, you know, you're, you're not in the water to, uh, to get your heart rate up and build more cardiovascular fitness. Let's focus entirely on technique, 
and on muscular endurance. And we're going to do a lot of that on dry land. A nice little hack to save time and become more efficient with your uh, swimming endeavors. Okay, now, how do you ingrain good technique or revise flawed neuromuscular patterns and replace them with more efficient patterns? What is the best way to tackle this very, very difficult challenge, especially for an adult with a less malleable, (laughs) I mispronounced that twice, with a less malleable nervous system? You do it at a slow pace. So when you start speeding up, trying to make the interval or honor the clock and the send-off time at your master's workout, you are going to default into your technique flaws because you are struggling to achieve a certain performance time. So the way to build new technique and to break away from those uh, technique flaws is to slow down and just swim laps and to think very carefully on every single stroke. Get into that meditative state where all you're thinking about is stroke mechanics. And strange as it may seem, hard to believe, especially for a jabbering high-attention guy like me, uh, that's mostly what I did in my swim workouts, was all I was thinking about was technique. Uh, Sure, a lot of times we were working hard and doing interval workouts, and we're swimming our 300s and leaving on a certain time, and so you're also kind of trying to pace yourself and think about those things. But for the most part, especially when swimming in open water, as you can imagine, where you're just looking at a, a long destination, you don't have to hit a wall or worry about turning, I was just thinking about my entry position of my arms, taking a strong pull, keeping my elbows high, having a relaxed recovery with a bent elbow where my hand was basically dragging along the side of my body, not swinging wide and promoting a fishtail position, but just keeping streamlined even on the recovery, entering again and doing the whole thing all over again. And that's one of the beautiful parts about swimming is you're have this uh, calming sensation in your central nervous system because you're in a body of water. It's a foreign environment. There's not a lot of stimulus. The stimulus is consistent. So you can kind of relax your hyper-attuned hypervigilance that you execute at all times when you're on land and and constantly scanning your environment, uh, just part of our genetics, right? Especially when, uh, consider you're riding a bike on the open roads You're always looking at every single car from your peripheral vision and the bumps on the road and shifting your gears, and there's all kinds of stimulation going in, even on a casual bike ride. Uh, So big difference in swimming where you can relax and really zone in and get totally focused and absorbed in executing good technique with every stroke. Very relaxing, meditative aspect to swimming. And so carrying on at a slow pace, not worrying about your pace, taking the time to build good technique will generate massive improvements on the race course. And we talk so much on this show and in the book about how slowing down your pace when you're uh, doing the other endurance sports will generate performance improvements because you improve your aerobic base building, your aerobic conditioning. Swimming is a little bit of a different story because it's not such a strenuous activity that you have a high risk of exceeding that aerobic maximum heart rate Uh, frequently. Even when you're swimming quote-unquote hard, your heart rate is still very likely in the aerobic zone because the stress impact of uh, swimming is so much less than uh, the gravity-bearing sports like running or even the uh, sports like cycling where you're generating a lot of uh, uh, body heat 
and generating a fatigue factor accordingly, whereas swimming, your body temperature is remaining stable, you're floating, you don't have any musculoskeletal stress whatsoever, and so you can carry on and swim kind of hard and still be an aerobic workout. However, when you're going hard in swimming, it makes it more and more difficult to uh, refine good technique. So if you just back off a little bit, focus on lengthening your stroke in a workout setting, that's a great key to know that you're on track for improvement is you can count the number of strokes you require to get from one end of the pool to the other and try to lower that number. And when you have a reduced stroke count to get from one end to the other, you are demonstrating that you're spending more time in a streamlined position and you're pulling more water back with each stroke so that each stroke is more efficient It's giving you more distance from when you started the stroke to when you ended the stroke. That means you're not slipping into that uh, drag propulsion vacuum and instead generating nice lift propulsion. Uh, Most of us are familiar, at least in the States, with a 25-yard pool. Uh, Internationally, we're mostly looking at 25-meter pools. The championship pools, the competitive pools, uh, you'll find are 50 meters. Those are really long, but those are much uh, more rare. So in a 25-yard pool, a good or great swimmer, an elite-level triathlete, for example, can get across that pool in 14 strokes, somewhere around there, 15, 16, sometimes 13 if they're tall. And that is, whew, that's very impressive, very efficient stroke. I used to swim once in a while in Sacramento way back when with a guy named Jeff Float, the most appropriate named athlete, one of the most appropriately named athletes of all time. He was an Olympic gold medalist in 1984 games in Los Angeles out of Sacramento. He was the first uh, deaf athlete to actually win a gold medal in the uh, the actual Olympic games. Uh, so uh, power to him for that achievement. Uh, but this guy was absolutely born for swimming. You could not believe how comfortable and relaxed he looked when he was swimming, even at a high speed. Uh, and he got across a regular 25-yard pool a little shorter than a meter pool, not much. He got across that pool in 10 strokes. (laughs) So just watching that from the deck is mesmerizing to see how smooth and powerful, no splash, everything's just uh, absolutely pure, no wasted energy, and boom, there he is across the pool in 10 strokes every time. So strive to improve your number, whatever it is, and a lot of recreational swimmers will find that maybe they're taking 21 strokes or 19 strokes, and if you can get that puppy down to 17, 16, you're making a tremendous amount of progress. Uh, If we want to get a little more sophisticated in the conversation here, there's a point of diminishing returns where you might want to focus on your stroke rate as opposed to just constantly uh, lengthening your stroke as uh, the ultimate destination. So once you get a pretty efficient with your stroke and you get down to a respectable stroke length, uh, then you can fool around with uh, increasing your cadence uh, and possibly swim faster uh, in a long distance swim. And the elites talk about this and how there was a movement toward improved cadence for a while. uh, And then it was back to, in the old days, we were all trying to just lengthen our stroke and become more powerful But anyway, that's beyond the scope of this, and we're trying to uh, make some nice improvements in uh, performance and technique for the recreational swimmer. So trying to take fewer strokes across the pool is a wonderful objective. And guess what? You're going to improve your your flip turns and your push-off as well. And 
swimmers like to do that. It kind of puts you in the right uh, state of mind if you push off and have a really nice streamlined push off where you're getting maximum power off the wall and putting your arms over your head and gliding through and then initiating some nice streamlined strokes. It kind of sets you in that mindset when you get a good wall push-off. So don't fool around and do lazy push-offs the wall. You want to just have everything seamless and streamlined. And of course, you're going to get uh, way fewer strokes if you have a wonderful push-off. Oh my gosh, you can see the guys in the Olympics uh, in the backstroke, especially, they had to make a rule that you had to enter the, you had to, you had to break the surface of the water uh, at a certain uh, distance beyond the wall because this guy uh, Jeff Rouse uh, from Stanford uh, won the gold medal and broke world records by staying underwater for almost the entire duration of a 50 meter pool because he was faster dolphining underwater than he was actually taking backstrokes. Pretty funny. So. Um, yeah, the, the swimmers can get so much power off that wall and leverage that to, you know, only break the surface when they're eight yards down the pool. And again, in a small pool, if it's a 25-yard pool, a third of the way is just the wall pushed off. Um, so all good stuff, fun to get more competent in that, especially if you haven't been around the pool your whole life. Uh, everything can be a chance to improve your technique and uh, get faster, more streamlined. Okay, so... Um, is that enough about uh, technique and streamlining, reducing stroke count? Yes. How about the next objective? And that is to improve your muscular endurance. Now, we talked about how swimming is more technique dependent than running because the resistance going through water is so much more dense than air. So the penalty for poor technique is magnified in swimming. However, on the next note, uh, the resistance of water is vastly less than, let's say, weights or surgical tubing or other dry land uh, training opportunities to improve your muscular endurance in swimming. So you can literally, in 10 minutes of hard work on land, get the equivalent, in muscular endurance only, of course, the equivalent of, let's say, an hour swim. Not the same cardio, of course, a 10-minute workout versus a 60-minute workout, but remember, you already have an A-plus in cardio. So, wow, focusing in on developing more muscular endurance with a very difficult and challenging shorter-duration dry land workout can be a massive benefit to your swimming. Throughout my career as a triathlete, I used this incredible, the ultimate dry land training tool called the VASA Swim Trainer, V-A-S-A invented by Rob Sleemaker, incredible inventor, running a wonderful company, very focused and specific training implements. They have one for cross-country skiing as well. But the Vasa Swim Trainer, the thing that was unique and superior uh, to any other uh, swim implement was that it actually caused your body to move through space rather than just, let's say, working with pulleys uh, on the uh, gym machine. So you lay down on a bench and actually moved uh, forward with your arms propelling you just like you are moving forward in the water with a swim stroke. So it was forcing you to work in open space and thereby uh, helping refine technique uh, by doing so rather than just putting out force onto the muscle. So uh, check it out. Uh, look at their website. Look at their videos. It's a significant investment. But if you're serious about swimming, I mean, it's cheaper than an endless pool, right, which is also pretty awesome but it also allows you to have a much more time-efficient workout 
than an actual swim workout. It's no replacement for real swimming through the water, but it almost is. And I have to report that in the off season, when I'd get out of the water, they close the pool, there's no working out during uh, December, January, whatever it was. Uh, I do a lot of Vasa swim work and just build up my muscular endurance. And when I got back into the pool after as long as two months without swimming at all, I needed a couple few workouts to uh, get the kinks loose and get the feel for the water again. But then I'd go and set PRs faster than I'd ever swum uh, for workout times by virtue of A, being fresh and rested after an off season, and B, putting in that muscular work on the Vasa swim trainer. I also like the Bowflex machine, the famous fitness machine. I was one of the first people to use it. Did you know that back in 1987? I was uh, the first sponsored athlete by Bowflex and boy, did they take off in the ensuing years. So um, another great unit where you're kind of using the stabilizer muscles to move the, uh, the power rods that you grab. You grab the handles and move these power rods through open space rather than a machine at the gym where you're constrained and you're still getting a good workout putting out force, but it's not the same as uh, a more dynamic movement like the Vasa Swim Trainer, like the Bowflex, or uh, much easier and cheaper than investing in a big Vasa bench is to get uh, some surgical tubing, uh, a great brand called Stretch Cords. I've been using for many, many years, Stretch Cords, C-O-R-D-Z, and for $35, you can have the greatest, most economical investment in your swim improvement and do wonders with these cords. So you hang them on to, hook them onto uh, something, uh, a fixed stable position, such as a doorknob, and then closing the door and pulling the straps through the, the door jam so that you have that support. And then you can initiate all manner of uh, resistance exercise uh, pulling these tubings. And I have a video coming soon uh, where I've integrated some stretch cord into my morning routine, a nice uh, gentle workout uh, different than uh, hoisting heavy plates around in the gym, uh, but again, working those stabilizer muscles and forcing you to move through space. And so the very best one for swimming is the uh, lat exercise where, again, you're going to have to use your imagination here, but you assume a 90-degree bent-at-the-waist position. So you're standing up straight, and then you bend almost all the way over so that your back is parallel to the ground, so you can eat breakfast off your back or someone else can, and then you uh, reach forward, extend your arms forward, and grab the handles of the stretch cords. And then you initiate what might be considered uh, a butterfly stroke in the water where you're using uh, both arms at the same time. It's too hard to balance if you're trying to do one arm at a time. You'll see why, because the resistance is pretty significant on the stretch cords. Uh, but you have your arms extended in front of you, waist bent at 90 degrees, and you go through the entire range of motion to extend your arms uh, completely straight uh, behind you. And oh my gosh, in five seconds, you can feel what it's like to actually engage the lats and deliver a very powerful swim stroke. And if you do 12 reps of this exercise, it is literally like swimming a thousand yards and you will be sore the next morning to prove it. So putting those into your mix, you see a lot of competitive swim teams will have these implements right there on the pool deck and they'll switch back and forth to mix things up, doing some dry land work and then getting back in and doing another set or doing them before the workout or after the workout, whatever the coaches think. 
but a wonderful integration into uh, actual swimming through the water because the resistance is so significant. And then not just working the lats, but I love to work my core with these things where I actually simulate a golf swing where I'm starting with both hands up at my right shoulder and then dragging both cords, holding on to the handles and dragging them down to my left knee. So going from upper right to lower left with a straight and stable back and your chest facing forward, just dragging the paddles across your body, engaging the abdominals in a full range of motion or pretty full for abdominals. And then switching sides, you can also do some nice um, uh, back exercises where you're pulling the paddles, uh, kind of doing that uh, familiar row workout that you do in the gym where you have the paddles in front of you and you pull them back to uh, either side of your body. Uh, They have a great pamphlet that comes with the stretch cords that demonstrates all the different workouts. Uh, And again, just a few minutes of these types of exercises, I would spend 10 minutes on the Vasa bench and be totally spent with an awesome swim workout, the same muscles that would take an hour to fatigue in the water. So I'm not kidding or exaggerating that this stuff can be uh, a a huge time efficient uh, introduction into into your entire swimming game. So you do some dry land, you focus on technique by swimming at a slow pace, you got your cardio dialed. And the next step, the final piece to the puzzle, is to simulate the competitive experience in training. And I think especially the triathletes are deficient on this, and they are uh, spending almost all of their time in a pool, by necessity, of course. You can't be getting out there in the ocean in Rhode Island in December, uh, and so forth. So, And, and the safety factors of swimming in open water. Uh, most people make a decent effort to get out and do some open water training throughout the year but certainly not ideal. Um, Actually, in the latter stages of my professional career, I was transitioning more and more away from pool workouts and trying to do as much uh, of my swim training as possible in open water because I had a more direct application to my performance in triathlons. Uh, For one, as I mentioned before, I wasn't having eight of every 25 swimming yards being a push off of a wall. So a third of my workout wasn't push off because I didn't care at all how well I pushed off. I was swimming in open water for a mile usually. Uh, So great to get out there in open water and failing that or uh, with the lack of opportunity for open water, practice, pretend that your swimming pool is open water rather than a place with a black line on the bottom to keep you guided and uh, uh, lane lane guards to keep you uh, keep you guided side to side and keeping the water stable. Those things also stabilize the water. So um, practice some head up swimming as a regular routine in your swimming workouts, where you're uh, sighting s i g h t i n g sighting every third or fourth stroke. In other words, you uh, on your breath cycle, you stick your head up and look forward and uh, look toward the far wall and try to navigate the pool um, that way rather than just staring at the black line, sort of uh, kind of simulating that uh, open water experience as best you can. Another thing I used to do was close my eyes for four or five or six strokes. Uh, So maybe just a baby, baby push off the wall to get started, and then I'd start swimming, and guess what? If I jam my fingers into a round plastic lane line, I had the feedback that I was not swimming in a straight line. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. Try to do that in your own lane, not with people coming in the other direction, or you'll slam into them. And we've had some pretty good accidents in training sessions, believe it or not, with people just spacing, not paying attention, and hooking someone else's arm going in the opposite direction. 
So simulating the open water experience as much as possible uh, in the pool or getting out to open water more frequently. And then finally, the other part of the race experience that seems to be missing from a lot of training programs is that uh, swim-to-bike simulation where you jump out of the water, your bike is waiting for you on the pool deck, and you jump on that thing soaking wet, trying to get your feet into the bike shoes while they're soaking wet, dripping all over your beautiful new bike frame and the custom paint job, uh, having the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the face all wet and trying to put on your sunglasses when you're, you're soaking wet. And guess what? Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff that can happen and kind of finding areas where your clothing's going to pinch or you're going to have difficulty getting your shoe on or all these things that you do not want to find out for the first time on race day. So get used to getting right out of the water and jumping on your bike. And furthering this theme, get used to, for example, doing a time trial of a similar length that you aspire to compete in. So when I was uh, doing Olympic distance racing, the swim was 1,500 meters, and we would commonly swim twice that, maybe even three times that commonly in workouts. So I'd put in a lot of 4,500-meter workouts, and boy, was that a great achievement and accomplishment and get me in shape for swimming. But very rarely did I time trial for 1,500 meters straight without stopping. Uh, and again, the, the, the walls are messing with that too. So a true, a true race simulation would be to go 1,500 meters as fast as you can in open water, or in the case of an uh, Ironman person, trying to swim nonstop in open water for 2.4 miles as a true preparatory event for a good competitive experience. And the other side of the coin to that is to be able to do that swim time trial and get your body into that fatigued state, and then immediately jump on the bike. You don't have to go do the exact bike time trial. Uh, In other words, do a 2.4-mile swim and then time trial for 112 miles. But if you did your big, long swim and then got on the bike and rode at race pace for even an hour, you would figure out some things that might be weak spots that you need to adjust. I hear many, many times over the years of athletes cramping up in the lower back surprisingly and so shockingly at mile 70 of the bike uh, when they're doing an Ironman or mile 42 when they're doing a 70.3 because they never once in training have swum uh, the 1.2 mile or the 2.4 mile distance without stopping and then jumped on the bike. Instead, they swim maybe double the race distance in a big impressive swim workout and then they go into the locker room and shower the chlorine off and get their nice little racing suit on and have a bite of a granola bar and clean their glasses with the custom chamois to get them all clean and free of streaks. Oh boy. And then, hey, you want to get started on our bike ride? Sure. Yeah. Oh, let me go stop at my uh, my mailboxes, et cetera, to, to get my mail. Do you guys mind if we waste 10 more minutes of inactivity? <laughs> Nothing compared to that simulated race experience. So put that in the back of your mind or the front, whichever one you prefer, and do the stuff that you're actually going to do on race day, perhaps over and over in training. Modified, of course, if it's too difficult or strenuous, but getting used to that swim-to-bike transition. I know a lot of triathletes are big on uh, doing the bricks and the bike-to-run transition, and that's fine and dandy, but I would even argue that that's less important than the swim-to-bike simulation. Because biking to running, guess what? Your legs are going to feel like rubber. It's going to be tough. It's going to take you a while to warm up. And you're not going to have as good a run as you do when you have a fresh run. But there's no way around that. I don't care how many bricks you do. You're not going to be superhuman off the bike and starting to run. 
And I think there's a high risk of brick workouts too. That's why I generally avoided them because the stress impact of that workout was so extreme. It took so much time to recover that I kind of calculated that the sum of the parts would be better than the whole and did more uh, race-specific over-distance bike rides, for example, or challenging difficult runs uh, that were preparing me for 10K by running 12 miles in the trails or doing a track workout or something that was just going to get me into pure running form. And by attacking the problem from that direction, uh, knowing that come race day, I would be pretty competent uh, getting off the bike and running. But for some reason, swimming and that lower back hyperextension that you endure for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, or an hour 20, uh, if you're going for the Ironman length, um, that's something that, whew, that takes some training and then be able, being able to get on the bike and scrunch up and get in that aero position and deal with it. We want to have a couple uh, simulation workouts there. So whew, that's longer than I thought I would talk about the niche topic of swimming. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you can implement some of those techniques and especially find someone in your area to give you one-on-one instruction. Failing that, sign up for some of the video instruction and put all your priority, your top priority on improving that technique. I tell the story in the book Primal Endurance how halfway through my uh, professional racing career, I decided to really embrace the aerobic concepts and I slowed down my workouts in every sport, including swimming. And I got more and more competent and comfortable with a nice uh, streamlined swim stroke to the extent that over time I was able to swim at aerobic heart rates very close to how I was able to swim when I was doing a high-intensity interval session. Just by increasing the efficiency of my stroke, my speed uh, improved dramatically uh, in the race setting and also was about the same uh, coming at it from the the base-building perspective rather than hammering myself day after day and dealing with sore deltoids and cramping and fatigue and all that stuff. So technique comes number one. Thank you for listening to The Swimming Show. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.